So welcome everybody to the latest uh, Researcher and Focus podcast from the Faculty of Humanities and Social Sciences here at the University of Liverpool. My name is Nick Jones, I'm part of the Research and Impact team and today I'm joined by Dr Stella Morgana, British Academy Postdoctoral Fellow in the Department of Politics and today Stella will be talking to us about her research investigating labour and the gig economy and especially how that manifests itself in Iran. So, Stella, thank you so much for joining me today. I wonder if you could, uh, just by way of a quick introduction, give us a little rundown of your academic background and career so far, and what brought you to the University of Liverpool? Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really glad to be here to share my experience and uh, discuss my research with you. Well, what brought me uh, to Liverpool? That's a good question. I think a series of my synchronicities uh, took me to this inspiring city and also stimulating institution. Um, I joined the University of Liverpool uh, thanks to my British Academy postdoctoral fellowship in uh, September uh, 2022 with a project on platform labour and gig workers in Iran. But um, well, let me tell you a story about that. Uh, it all started with a tweet. So on Twitter, it was early summer uh, 2021 when I read that the Department of Politics was looking for potential applicants to the British Academy uh, postdoctoral scheme. So I sent my proposal along with my abstract and everything to my current mentor, uh, Dr. Hannes Baumann. And then uh, from uh, from there, uh, I I went through a few stages of internal review uh, within the University of Liverpool before actually submitting my application to the British Academy, which is in, like in two stages, right? But well, you asked me uh, also about my academic background, uh, my career development. Uh, before my uh, current fellowship, I held uh, research and uh, teaching positions at Leiden University, at the University of Amsterdam. And uh, before that, uh, during my doctoral studies, I was uh, also a visiting researcher at SOAS University of London and at Tabiat um, Modares in Tehran, so in Iran. But in the two years before moving to Liverpool for my British Academy Fellowship, I had the really immense pleasure, I have to say, to be a lecturer in Middle East history and politics at the University of Amsterdam, where I also designed courses um, such as climate change in the Middle East. Um, I had the opportunity also to, to teach and design a course on a module on the politics of labor and inequality in the Middle East and uh, in North Africa. So labor politics um, has been at the core of my research uh, since my doctorate years. But so during my uh, PhD at Leiden University uh, in the Netherlands, I explored uh, the role of workers between the uh, 1979 revolution in Iran and the um, 2009 Green Movement in Iran. So I conducted extensive field work uh, in Tehran, in Espan, uh, but also in other smaller cities in Iran. And there I had the chance to research workers' uh, agency, workers' impact on social and political change. But like, uh, I have another detail that I would love to share, just to give... Uh, 
those who are listening to us maybe some hope that you're never too old actually to learn and to to start a new path or a new career because prior to joining the world of academia uh, between my degree in islamic studies which was in italy and then my ma in middle eastern studies uh I worked for nine years as a freelance journalist, as an editor, a web manager, and then I followed what uh, my dream was. So uh, my dream of being a researcher. And, uh, and so I started focusing on the political role of work, in particular in the Middle East, but then in particular in, uh, in Iran. Fantastic. Uh, and as a gentleman of a certain age, it's very reassuring to know that uh, there's hope and I could still follow my dream if only I could decide what that was. So it's great that that also shows us the power of social media and the fact that it was a tweet that you saw that helped bring you to the University of Liverpool. So um, reassuring as a person who also looks after a Twitter account for the university. It's good to know that sometimes it works. So thank you for that. Um how did you come to focus on this particular aspect of research and the world of work and labour politics and the concept of the uh, digital gig economy? Was there any particular um, experiences or papers or projects or academics that helped push you in that direction, shape your work? Um, well, the world of work, labour politics and workers represent, I think, a key lens to understand the reality. So my interest started while I was studying the 1979 Iranian revolution and its history. Workers in Iran joined the revolutionary body only after students, intellectuals, merchants, clerics, but when they took to the streets, they actually managed to paralyze the state apparatus. They economically blocked the system. They hindered any further action from the uh, monarchy. So their role, I mean, workers, the role of workers was fundamental to the success of the Iranian revolution. So first economically and then um, and then politically. Uh, the gig economy and digital labor uh, platforms are only a recent uh, research interest as somehow they are a manifestation of the same um, dynamics unfolding in the factories. But within the context of the gig economy, there is much more to research and explore as, for example, the dynamics of precarity and exploitation, uh, because they go, these dynamics go hand in hand with new opportunities uh, and challenges such as governance, legal issues, job opportunities, or new forms of organizations, both, uh, both I would say, from a bottom-up end uh, and top-down perspective. So I was inspired by the work, um, uh, the work of many scholars, but I think that there is so much to write about the Middle East. So I think that the best is yet to come here. And there are a few uh, young researchers who are actually studying these uh, new trajectories. Good, and of course, you will be adding to that body of research and work as well yourself. Um... The kind of digital gig economy in Iran is something that we don't really hear about when we hear about that country over here in the UK. Could you tell me a little bit what the status of it is and um, how is that? I think you, you've got um, a project, the gig economy of Iran, uh, humans versus the means of production on um, in process as well. So how does that all feed in? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just started. Well, I started in September, October 2022, and I'm uh, in the first phase of this uh, project. But um, I think I, I would love to start with saying that Iran is a country where the uh, authoritarianism of the Islamic Republic cohabitates with an immense, huge intellectual, technological and social labor of progress and love that permeates the social body. So the gig economy in Iran uh, is a tech bubble of online shopping, food delivery, taxi services, care work, which is opening new spaces of employment, uh, participation for uh, young Iranians. I mean, half of the the 8 million population is under 30. Uh, so this is relevant to my project. This is, I, I think, um, uh, innovative in, in itself, right? So my project investigates how um, humans are selling their labor through digital platforms relate uh, to the uh, means of production in a Marxist, using a Marxist expression. But there are, I mean, we can move forward uh, from these uh, rigid um, categories and start trying to understand what the past and past uh, lenses of understanding can teach us because um, the, the realities are already going uh, so much forward. And in Iran in particular, there are two types of startups um, that I'm going to research. First, there are uh, web-based uh, web platforms uh, which require workers to sell their label, the labor fully online, for example, and can be performed from anywhere. I mean, high-tech software, software creation or video editing or marketing. And then there is a second kind of, uh, let's say, location-based platforms. Uh, they combine market uh, placement online and other activities in the physical world, for example, food delivery or taxi services or care work. In Iran, there are a few examples. Uh, a few examples, DigiColor, it's kind of Iranian, an Iranian twin of Amazon, controlling about 85% of uh, Iran's online retail markets. And then there is um, a local version of PayPal um, uh, called uh, Zarimpal, for example, or Zorak, which is for travelers, or Tahfifan, um, which is similar to Groupon, or Snap, which is um, a local version of similar to Uber for taxis, with uh, more than um, uh, 600,000 registered drivers across the country. So my project in particular tackles how um, those workers, so the gig workers, exercise their agency in a context where hybrid capitalism, such as the one I actually described, fuels um, labor and labor uh, inequalities or labor disparities or even exploitation or forms of precarities. Um, as the gig economy in Iran also has expanded massively in the last uh, uh, 10 years uh, in Iran, but also in other states, uh, in the Middle East, gig workers' uh, stories, I think, are 
truly um, crucial, they are relevant to understand the evolving uh, dynamics of political, but also economic participation from a bottom-up perspective, not only in Iran or in the region, but more broadly, I mean, globally. So uh, I would say that the gig economy involves the exchange of um, labor via digital platforms with, uh, you know, this plethora of short-term contracts, um, independent workers, but also it opens a new spaces of both employment and, but also participation for the youth, increasing a further kind of loosening of state control over young people's uh, lives, and this is quite relevant also now. So my project is, um, I would love to see my project as uh, one of the first a uh, scholarly attempt to explore the relation, relations between humans selling their label through digital uh, platforms, but also the new means of production in Iran beyond the, the, the factory environment. So there is a working class, I think. There's a, a, a like precariat, as it was to be, uh, it can be called actually. So my project aims to understand what impact the uh, the gig economy has in shaping labor, but also political participation in Iran. And um, the final um, objective would be to 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 understand and to tackle what what extent precarity and exploitation influence economic and political transformations. Okay, very, very, very interesting. Yes, uh, I noticed you talked there about um, uh, Iran-specific apps, um, you know, the counterparts to what we know over here. Um, are they all local or do they use, uh, do things like, I don't know, uh, you mentioned Uber or Deliveroo or what have you. Do they have presences or is it all um, specific local apps? It it's so uh, it's all Iranian, all specific. Yeah, yeah it's all local because um, the foreign companies are not allowed in that sense to start businesses in Iran. So that's why they're all local. But beyond the the, the state intervention there, I would say that it's uh, there's so much um, bottom up um, uh, progress in, in Iran allows uh, all these um, apps and startups to to thrive actually in the country even though there is I mean cohabitating with the Islamic Republic um, apparatus okay great thank you so much um precarity or the gig economy as as we call it now has been with this for a long time, I think, in lots of different ways. I'm thinking about particularly someone who's grown up in Liverpool hearing stories about, you know, dock workers and um, people like that or labourers who would go and queue up on a daily basis and not necessarily know whether they're going to get a day's work out of it or it might be very short term. How's the arrival of digital technologies and these various task-specific apps changed the nature of precarity, do you think? Well, thanks for this question. Uh, well, uh, I would say let's start with by defining uh, what digital platforms do, and this um, doesn't relate to only to Iran. I mean, more broadly, because um, digital platforms um, actually mediate work, meaning that they allow the creation of a digital context in which 
those who buy labor power are um, are actually able to connect uh, with those who sell their labor. So here I'm referring to the so-called two-sided market, right? So, for example, Uber's platform or Snap, as it is called in Iran, a similar version, is useful. They're both useful to put in contact or to connect people who want a taxi ride with other people who are willing to provide taxi rides. But the main point here is that uh, digital platforms within the context of the gig economy are um, transforming the world of labor globally. Well, of course, it would be uh, more accurate to say gig economies, but it's because there are different versions of that. But I think there is a global uh, gig economy or there are um, global factors. So how um, um, does the gig economy uh, transform? How is the gig economy transforming the world of labor? So first, because the um, these digital platforms connect workers and clients who lack either um, uh, proximity or synchronicity. So what I mean is that they are not in the same place and at the same time. So this has an impact on precarity as there is no shared, for example, workplace or continuity that um, makes more difficult for workers to organize, for example, and that's a global factor. But there is another issue here, um, how to platformize work so how to measure work? This is a problem. This has been a problem of management and of employers, right? How to measure work. Within factories, for example, workers were paid for um, for days, their time in, in a workplace. So managers buy most of workers' time. Uh, but in the digital economy, so in the new uh, forms of gig economy or gig economies, all these issues become, I would say, more difficult to tackle. And measuring tasks, measuring time and uh, efficient work, let's say efficient work for managers or employers, it's hard to tackle. Plus, it is important to add one last um, element to, to answer your question, because not all workers want to work as efficient efficiently as possible, especially when they are either poorly paid or they are precarious in terms of contracts, right? Well, yeah, that's a very good point. If Why should they put in exactly everything when they perhaps feel they're not getting it back? You, you mentioned briefly there the um, topic of workers organising and potentially unionization. What's the state of that in Iran? How are they viewed? Because I know over here, lots of like companies will... Uh, go out of their way to try and stop their workers organizing. Is it a similar thing over there? Or is there a different attitude? Yes, absolutely. Uh, well, in Iran, workers don't have the official right to unionize. There is only one uh, legal uh, trade union, which is uh, state affiliated in Iran, but uh, um, and then officially, uh, all workers should be affiliated to the so-called Hane Kargar, which is the, the house of the worker. 
but uh, and which is also connected to uh, a political party um, or a political organization in Iran because parties are not uh, fully legal or they don't fully overlap with the political system there. But the right to unionize uh, is a crucial element uh, in Iran. But workers have been um, have been uh, protesting uh, in Iran since the revolution, actually. And they've been trying to find um, uh, different and uh, various uh, trajectories or follow uh, various trajectories uh, of resistance. Um, in particular, for talking about the gig economy and digital economy, it's so it is still so hard to tackle because they are divided. So it's uh, they, they basically this follows the rule of divide and rule. So precarity uh, adds a uh, further element to this difficulty of unionized in the country. Okay, that's interesting to know, but it's um, not that different over there than maybe in some ways in terms of how people get access to um, organization. Uh, kind of touching on that, but looking at it maybe from the other side, and this is less, this is not just an Iranian question, this is one which, you yeah, know, I think affects all of us in terms of do you think the people who use these apps the customers the people who use the 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 food delivery and the uber type things um they'll often be from the same similar kind of working class background as the people who are providing that service but do you think they are perhaps not as aware perhaps of the structures and practices that happen behind these apps thanks for this question this is so relevant i, I really don't know if they come from the same working class background i do think so but in particular in iran um class wise oh background um in terms of background i think that there are so many new um middle class uh impoverished i would say middle class uh young people working in, in the gig economy and within the context of digital platforms. But uh, answering the second question that you, you asked me, the one about the customers and uh, them be unaware of the structures and practices behind these tools, I would say absolutely yes. I mean, that's why research, I think it's is really uh, crucial, fundamental to bridge the gap between um, the university and the broader uh, public. Because, um, I mean, as our digital societies are evolving, labor dynamics as well as hegemonic relations or and worker struggles, they should be brought to the uh, mainstream debate. So to expose mechanisms of exploitation and power relations are behind the headlines and also beyond this um, shallow narrative of the gig economy just bringing new job opportunities and so on okay fascinating well i'm uh I'm glad it was a topic of interest because uh, it's it's something that we often think about here, you know, in terms of it's just so easy. It's just a little thing on your phone. But then there's actually a, a human being on the other side of that, isn't there, having to do what you've asked them to do in some ways. Um, in our blog, the Research and Focus blog, you mentioned that one of your overarching research interests is uh, around labour and labour equalities in the Middle East. 
Um, I know you touched on it a little bit here, but I wonder, is there any kind of regional specific elements to that discussion um, that perhaps we might not be aware of? Um, framing labor and uh, inequality in, in inequality in the Middle East uh, is a challenge that gave me actually so much joy uh, and inspiration, especially in the diverse uh, class environments I taught uh, this course uh, in. And uh, as you correctly suggested, there are um, some regional specific um, historical and political elements. But uh, I would I would uh, not speak, for example, of exceptionalism, exceptionalism of the region um, of the Middle East. So to tackle these elements, uh, I think it's useful to start from one key uh, concept in the Middle East. Uh, the key concept is um, to look at, I think, um, is uh, social contracts, meaning broken social contracts. So I think that the uh, plural, using the plural is uh, much more uh, accurate here because the Middle East is the most unequal region in the world. So in terms of unequal income concentration, unequal uh, wealth, uh, distribution, income and taxes, household income. So those broken social contracts are to be linked to other key elements such as street politics or uh, political instability, unrests, uh, protests. What I'm trying to say here is that labor and class are two very uh, useful lens uh, to understand the region and uh, a sort of a paradigm of political, not totally uh, economic opposition to the state. So these uh, there are different dimensions to answer your questions there. So there is a regional uh, dimension, so a regional element, meaning that enormous inequality, uh, there is enormous inequality and inequalities between countries in the Middle East and North Africa. So particularly between all rich and population rich countries. But there is also a domestic level to take into account. So large inequality within countries, which we probably underestimate given the limited uh, access to proper fiscal, um, uh, to proper data about the Middle East. There's another peculiar aspect, uh, which is the lack of uh, domestic and regional uh, transparency on income and wealth. In the Middle East, there is another particular element, which is a lack of uh, regional um, coordination, uh, meaning that mechanisms of regional redistribution or uh, regional investment are not very clear, not well coordinated. But we, we have to consider another crucial aspect that we forgot and which is connected to the global which connects the Middle East to the global uh, uh, arena. I mean, uh, that uh, should not be forgotten. And uh, is that, that since the 90s, the uh, Middle East and North Africa, all the countries, ex almost all the countries experienced the classic neoliberal reforms of privatization, um, uh, deregulation, um, or reforms, all these reforms in order to deal with the challenge of globalization. So neoliberalism as a form of economic policy, we know is generally described or um, 
uh, by free trade or characterized by free trade, uh, market liberalization, deregulation, all this thing, privatization. But reducing the notion of neoliberalism to a narrow understanding of just free market policy, policies would be, in the Middle East in particular, to neglect similar to the rhetoric on good, on good governance, uh, to neglect the implicit political character that um, brought Middle Eastern people to the streets, for example. So in the Middle East, uh, in terms of uh, the politics of labor and the politics of inequalities, privatization, for example, uh, uh, played a crucial role. It became a new source of patronage to reinforce and, uh, and um, for example, extend the uh, links between the political and the economic elites. I mean, politics and, econo and economy, they, they, they need scholarship. They should need scholarship a bit more often. So because we need to understand uh, how class has been overlooked and how we can um, re reuse the class as a good lens of understanding to... to, to uh, to read new realities. Okay, so would you say this, uh, like kind of neoliberal program that's happening there, um, do you think it's going as well as it is over here in terms of often it's a, a, a race to the bottom sometimes in terms of um, the quality that it provides to people at the expense of, um, like you say, the um, ennoblement, if you like, of the um, political and economic classes a bit more? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, uh, neoliberalism is not just something on paper. It's a, a clear, not only a, an economic project, it's a political project. And it um, undermines the uh, political power of lower classes because it is targeted to specific elites most of the times. And privatization is not... Um, just uh, opening up new opportunities, but it also creates uh, or enlarges uh, big inequalities uh, and uh, talking about uh, the lower classes. Thank you. Uh, fascinating stuff. Thank you so much. Um, now, here at the university, you teach uh, seminars in international relations and supervise dissertations with specific focus on the Middle East and North Africa. Um, is this a particularly strong area of study here at uh, Liverpool, do you think? Oh, the University of Liverpool uh, has uh, leading experts on the Middle East. And uh, I think that especially in the last few years, efforts are uh, being put in place to foster interdisciplinary work collaboration initiatives between different departments in this sense. Although uh, there is no specific um, research group uh, focused on the Middle East and North African region in particular, but the, the interdisciplinary focus of the politics department, the department uh, I'm affiliated to, and also the School of Histories, uh, Languages and Cultures, I think that um, all these uh, research environments and these specific focus, um, they make um, 
the 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 perfect they make it the perfect research environment for me and for a project like mine a project that proposes a new uh, study on, of human relations so seeking a dialogue between labor discuss analysis and class-based analysis i mean my british academy fellowship is uh, providing me with the opportunity to work with uh, leading uh, scholars on the Middle East that are working actually while well, working on uh, the Middle East uh, in particular, for example, Hannes Bauman uh, is working on uh, Middle East political economy. Osge um, um, uh, Zinyolu, she's working on uh, the Middle East um, civil society or um, Professor Alex Balch is working on unfree labor. So for me, the University of Liverpool is an excellent context to work and to thrive in an open dialogue with uh, political science uh, scholars. But yeah, the, the, there is so much to do. And uh, I'm sure that all the, there are the seeds uh, um, to, to, to create new opportunities and to, to, to deepen the study on, on the Middle East in particular. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Um, you, know, you know, without uh, over uh, labouring the point a bit, the, the breadth of um, topics studied here just to enable that interdisciplinary so much. From my position, because I get to meet so many of you academics, there's so much going on, so many interesting things, there's so many people working with each other on lots of different topics as well. Um, earlier on, you used a, a phrase of, um, you know, labour and labour politics as a lens through which to look at the Middle East. But um, when you were a lecturer in political science and Middle Eastern studies at the University of Amsterdam, uh, you taught a course there, amongst other things, on climate change and environmental politics um, in the Middle East as one of, if not the most pressing topics that um, we have to think about in uh, our generation. I wonder if you could tell us just a little bit about how climate change and its environmental impacts are viewed and experienced in the region. Show us through that lens what's going on there. Oh, I think that the environmental dynamics um, in the Middle East are uh, both reflective but also co-constitutive um, or broader uh, global uh, political, uh, economic and environmental forces so all these environmental dynamics and climate change i think are being um, integral to the power politics uh, in and also of the people living in the middle east so put this differently understanding uh environmental change i think and natural resources uh management in the middle east from a local perspective is essential to understanding the huge amount of political um and socio-economic hopes uh illusions but also uh, problems of the local people i mean it's uh, the middle eastern uh, inhabitants i mean both in in their on the ground kind of uh, manifestations but also in the ways uh, they are integrated in broader uh, global systems uh, what i mean here is that uh, climate change goes beyond the orientalist um, narrative and vision of the middle east as the arid lands as the um, desert and the narrative 
moments of emergency, of crisis, there is a crisis, but knowledge production matters. I mean, the problematic ways that, that various um, Anglo-European, uh, Europeans and Western uh, actors, from travelers to colonial bureaucrats to artists, but also scientists, all those actors perceived and also represented the, the, the Middle East and North Africa uh, environment over the, the, the last several centuries, primarily as a um, uh, degraded uh, desert, wasteland, you know, ruined by local land use or practices. I, I think that this narrow environmental narrative, although, I mean, is strongly undermined now, undermined now by contemporary uh, new researchers, but I think this narrow narrative is uh, somehow problematic. And uh, instead of correct the climate and uh, and change the ecology as the colonizers did i think that we 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 may want to uh, focus on local initiatives uh um that are trying to tackle uh, broader uh, issues of mismanagement for example of lack of resources but also of wrong investments because during, for example, the, the French mandate, but also in, in some countries, but also in the following years, uh, there were many inappropriate projects across the region that, and those financed by also Western countries that have failed to achieve their goals to restore uh, the green desert. You know what I mean here? Because they, they actually, they have succeeded in depriving various local groups instead of empowering empowering them and is that do you think from a kind of imposition of um externally kind of this is what we think the region wants rather than speaking to the people who live and work there and finding out what they actually do need yeah yeah absolutely absolutely we have to decolonize also the our our approach and our perspective when studying uh, other regions and also this idea that we look at them. So this kind of uh, dichotomy, I, I think, is poisoning a good uh, approach to research. But there are amazing attempts to decolonize our curricula, even at the University of Liverpool. We, we are really and fiercely working towards giving more nuanced uh, understandings of Obvious. political, yes, ecological and local initiatives in many sense. Yes. Great. Thank you. Um, now, you mentioned this at the top of the recording, but prior to joining the world of academia, uh, you worked in various other fields, including as an editor, a website manager, a journalist. Do you think these experiences outside um, the world of universities has helped you when you did eventually come over to the dark side, so to speak? Well, absolutely, yes, yeah, yeah. As I as I wrote in my blog, I think that um, research has a special power, right, of combining uh, knowledge, knowledge production, connection. I mean, human connection, but also discovery. So, I think that uh, my different experiences and my um, diverse uh, kind of um, academic, but also 
um, of worker experiences and background allowed me to sharp uh, my focus, but also they gave me the chance to appreciate, you know, um, different processes of knowledge production in along different lines and uh, in diverse, very diverse context. As you recalled uh, before um, starting to track, let's say, the academic or research part, I work as an editor, I was as a website manager, but also as a freelance journalist for almost all these jobs for almost uh, 10 years. So 2010, uh, 2007, uh, from 2007 to 2016. And in those years, I mean, I, I lived in Tehran, I traveled and lived long stays also in Beirut and in Istanbul. I learned to be flexible. I learned to be tolerant, but I think more importantly, I challenged my own limits, my own unconscious uh, bias. So uh, I think that that probably one of the reasons why now turning uh, diversity into uh, real inclusion at the university or in my work, in my research, is fundamental. I mean, these embodies um, my my core values, I think, as a scholar, as an educator, as a researcher. I mean, I, I'm strongly committed to EDI in the sense that I, I really would love to, to create um, a, a truly inclusive uh, research work and learning environment and to, to decolonize what uh, we we research, what we study from different perspectives. I, I really would love to create a space where all identities and perspectives and the way we look at the world uh, are just included, they're just appreciated or, or, or simply, I mean, in, in some cases, even acknowledged. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you. So everything comes together in the end to get you where you need to be. Now, uh, I'm from the Research and Impact Office, so it would be remiss of me not to end with an impact type question. So what do you think would be the single most significant change you'd like to see out there in the real world as a result of your research? Uh, I think that my current research uh, direct somehow directly speaks uh, to one of the key issues of our present that we discussed, uh, largely discussed today, um, digital societies. I mean, we are living in a digital society and there are several digital societies around the globe. So understanding the social political impact of the gig economy and platform work in Iran, in the Middle East, and and more broadly uh, um, in the global South, I think that this will provide us with a more nuanced understanding of the broader implications of digital developments on our global societies. Uh, so questions of um, for example, digital opportunities, inequalities, as we, uh, we talked before, that all these uh, issues are directly connected. I like to think of my work and my research as a, as, a, as a small yet valuable contribution to advance the knowledge on these themes by exploring exactly those links between the investments on digital infrastructures that are through online platforms that are amazing, 
but also the rising job insecurity and labor uncertainty that we're living at the moment, but which is massive everywhere and globally. And in this direction, talking about impact and um, bringing my work into something more uh, tangible, let's say I'm also organizing a workshop in June 2023. So now on the gig economy and platform workers in the Middle East at the University of Liverpool. Uh, and so I'm trying to, 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 to start understanding and to map out how many scholars are working on these issues. And more broadly, I, I really hope to, uh, to I recently applied uh, to a big, a big grant to organize um, a global conference, also the University of Liverpool, uh, fingers crossed, on the gig economy and platform workers in the global south. So what's the future of global digital work understood from a global south uh, perspective? What are the, the social political consequences of the uh, economic transformations or but also the, the, the disruptions occurring to traditional sectors such as I don't know, domestic work, accommodation, taxi services, all these uh, services that we um, use on a daily basis. So by reflecting on these questions, I, I, I really hope to um, start uh, bridging, um, bridging the gap between research, I mean, this ivory, ivory tower of academia and the, 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 the broader public. And uh, so that, I mean, from the particular experience of Iran, then I'll, I'm, I'm aiming <laughs> to move uh, to the Middle East and then to the global south. Let's see what happens. And then the world. Yeah. I mean, I, I absolutely. I see where you're coming from in terms of this whole digital uh, revolution, if you like, is you know relatively recent, 25, 30 years since it's taken over. Um, so fast moving, changes so much and completely all consuming. You know, so many people's lives are, are now thoroughly embedded in the digital. So, uh, yes, to do that work of, of bringing the digital and our real life experiences and interactions with it, uh, with a bit of some clarity, it would be uh, great stuff. Thank you so much. Um, Dr. Stella Morgana, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, good luck with your grant. I look forward to uh, your workshops and your conferences coming up. So we'll keep an eye out for them. Um, thank you so much again for joining us. Thank you. Uh, and uh, next month, if you keep an eye out for uh, Dr. Mary Booth from the Centre for the Study of International Slavery, who uh, I'm hoping will be joining us for our next research in focus. Until then, thank you very much and goodbye. Mm -hmm.